economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Luke Graham, co-producer and graduate assistant for the Gordon Institute. We have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gordon Institution and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We have Dr. Dustin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, we have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gordon Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right. Well, we thought we'd talk about a few headlines that we've seen here on child labor. I've got a clip from an article that reads, U.S. government should end child labor at home. Farm worker children under 18 need better protection. It starts off with this quote around the world. This week, the U.S. Department of Labor published its annual global report evaluating 131 countries and territories on their efforts to end the worst forms of child labor. The 1,365-page report found that while 79 countries had made moderate or significant advancement toward ending child labor, 49 had made minimal or no progress. However, a similar assessment of the situation in the U.S. was conspicuous on its absence. And Peter, you had something in Wisconsin? Yeah, so one of the recent headlines that's been popping up is the idea that, well, a lot of people are expressing concern towards some lawmakers who are loosening child labor laws in response to kind of the shortage of labor that's going on in the country. So because there's not enough people working in places, lawmakers in Ohio and Wisconsin have started to kind of relax labor laws or try to relax labor laws for teenagers, really, 14 and 15 year olds, just the, the age range. Yeah. One of those labor laws I remember since I grew up working in the restaurant at the starting at the age of 15, as uh, at some point they passed a law that said you have to be at least 18 to run the slicer. Slicing meats real thin, like at Subway or at restaurants, it's pretty, fairly common to be slicing meats. And so we called it the slicer dicer. It had to be, uh, you had to be 18. And so that just one little example of how there has been regulations over time. I don't know, maybe they were based on a disproportionate number of 15, 16 year olds with their fingers that were getting cut off, or maybe it was just that we we shouldn't allow a minor to be put in that position or something. I have no idea. Maybe I should have researched that a little bit more. But I mean, the issue of protecting our children is a real one that we, we need to be careful with this stuff, but well, that's what we want to talk about today. Used to be able to buy a foot-long finger sandwich at Subway that was made <laughs> of children's fingers. <laughs> It's, I think it's ridiculous that these kids who are over 16 years old can drive themselves to work in an automobile and then, ooh, don't let them touch the slicer though, right? Yeah, uh, right. Good point. So this is another example where I just think our elites have this cost-benefit analysis that is totally ignorant to the amount of risk that we willingly submit to and are even you know, just confronted with on a daily basis. Yeah. And so I I think the first thing that we could do is sort of address this narrative that's being used that we're trying to bring back child labor to undermine. So corporations can undermine what they have to pay their workers. This is basically what's being said as well. Corporations aren't willing to pay their workers enough to bring them back to work. And so now politicians are trying to relax labor laws for for children. I think we, we should probably have some historical context here. 
an absence of child labor, I think we can generally agree is like a good sign for society that we can move away from children having to work to a certain extent. It depends on what you mean by that. But we should note that it's like a modern luxury that societies throughout time have had, you know, children working uh, from very young ages. Of course, there's even a little bit of playing going on with the word child here. Uh, when they say child labor laws are being relaxed, they're talking about teenagers again. And so I think the, the first important step is recognizing, well, this is actually sort of a, a modern sensibility that we have, that this disposition against child labor. It, it's not something that historically has existed with humanity. It's new. Yeah, I, I, like, I like the way you said it's a sign of progress in a sense that we have the, the luxury of those sorts of options to not have children working rather than it being a mandate of how something ought to be, it's actually a reflection of progress. Yeah. And so I, based on this, a lot of economists will sort of levy defenses of child labor, especially in, for example, developing countries. And the defense goes something like this. Well, you know, you don't know the situation in a country, for example, like India, where if you might have your father, you know, is working a job, your mother maybe is like taking care of like a home backyard farm garden uh, situation in order to make ends meet. And if a child, you know, is going to school, but maybe they're not doing well, or they don't really have access to go to school for whatever reason, and you have a law that prevents them from going out and working, well, you're, this family might be, you might just be subjecting them to have like less food than they actually need to go on. And so by allowing the child to go work on a farm as a farmhand or something like that, like you're making even the child's life better. You're providing more resources for the family itself. I think Peter touched on these two different ways to cleave up this pie. And I want to make sure that we're doing this very clearly because I think it can help us analyze what we do and don't like about child labor. So let's first talk about labor that is exploitative versus labor that isn't exploitative. And we can say that like exploitative labor, we just think is bad generally. And we think it would be better if people didn't have to do it. You can think of like, we're even really onerous labor here, like really difficult farm picking strawberries or something is very difficult to do. And then, so we can imagine that, that we want the amount, like that share of labor to go down over time. And I think you're hundred percent right that the, that is a luxury to not have to do that kind of labor. When you are in a society that is generally poor, most people have to do that kind of really onerous labor. And when when you look at very poor societies, children do work that kind of onerous labor precisely because the alternative for the family and for the children even is worse, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's also this difference between labor that, well, say that there is a kind of even if we eliminated that kind of child labor, there is still child labor when we're talking about teenagers that we think isn't like exploitative or onerous, but that, you know, were I a multimillionaire, I would still want my child to do that kind of labor. It's not like even if I had enough wealth to get them out of that labor, I would say, oh, well, we're wealthy enough. You don't have to do that. No, no, no. I want you to go do that. I want you to learn some skills. Yeah. And I feel like these two kinds of child labor often get grouped together and mm -hmm. we say, well, since the first kind of child labor is bad, we want to make laws that outlaw it. And then we end up making it illegal for children to participate in the second kind of child labor, which is actually good and character building. I mean, I think of like, like Russ, I worked in the restaurant industry since I was, you know, 15 to 30 and Russ actually probably got out of it earlier than I did, but it started around the same time. And I remember having to set up the buffet at 3 a.m. and sorry, at 5 a.m. at Embassy Suites. 
And it was really difficult, but, you know, I learned a lot during that time and I, I learned how to be a better worker, you know, and it wasn't like I was doing that or else my family would starve or something, but it taught me a lot of things. And, you know, I learned a lot about work ethic um, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't want to remove that kind of opportunity from the labor force. And I worry that whenever we group these two classes of child labor together, that's what we end up doing. Yeah. yeah, I think, thank you for making that distinction for me, Justin. You're, you're right that like there, there is a section of child labor and children being, again, we'll, we'll stick to 14 to 16 because that's what we're talking about <clears> here <throat> with the U.S. And, you know, even younger to some extent, I worked at a summer camp when I was, you know, 14 and volunteered and, you know, would have been happy to do so at 13 as well. There are types of labor that can build character, make you better, build skills, things like that. And for, you know, some, to some extent, they're not really even about the money, right? They're about the skill building and the learning. Those might actually be the most valuable components. Then there's other pieces of labor that we especially don't want children to do. So you don't want to put your children in like the chimney sweep role. That's it. Yeah. Or (laughs) down, send them down into the mines, right? If you're very wealthy, you want that to go away entirely. In fact, we would hope in society that that will go away entirely for everyone. It would be great if no children ever went down into mines or chimney sweeps or something that's going to lead to long-term consequences. But I agree with you, Justin, that there are certain jobs and, and, you know, having a job teaches you something early in life that that is valuable. In fact, even people who say, no, no kids should do any working at all. You should take your teenage years to be a teenager and be a kid. Even those people really support child labor. They just like to call that labor school, right? Like this is the (laughs) alternative that is, is a requirement our government does make people do in order to pass school. You have to do some work. Now you could say, well, the kid could just not do anything. At the very least, they're sitting in the classroom, right? At the very least, their job is to sit there and move to the next spot when the bell rings. So everyone is basically okay with children doing something. It's just a question of what. So I want to bring up the uh, unfortunate circumstances, even in the United States, that many poor would find themselves in to where it might be really beneficial for the 13-year-old to be able to work, and they're being denied that. So let's say that the average income in the United States is 60,000. And so we're pretty, we're pretty rich. Well, it's too easy to be lost in the averages by looking at the margin. We'll, we all know stories, I think, of people who are struggling right at the poverty line. Mom has an addiction or a gambling problem or something. And so that 13 year old not being able to go to work someplace is forced into maybe some illegal or informal work that could be more dangerous or heaven forbid prostitution or drug dealing and drug running or somehow getting sucked into those because it's their only alternative to actually put food in their stomach or to help mom with the bills um, as mom struggles through addiction or something. And so, yes, we'd like to have Uh, We may look at that now and say, okay, well, let's have a government that creates a social safety net with child protection and and food. And so maybe that what I'm going to throw out there is, is does the U.S. already have this about right with the between the government programs and the charitable programs of uh, student lunches, the backpack lunches, other things to, for the most part, capture that 13 year old and give them alternatives that doesn't suck them into that? Or are we worse off because of that? My answer is no, the U.S. does not have it about right. We should have much, much more child labor. Um, (laughs) 
I think that a lot of the things that we do in high school, we should have vocation programs for kids who probably, you know, would do better in the trades than learning algebra two or something like that. And I think if we had a kind of apprenticeship program where kids could go to work earlier um, and learn trades earlier on, I think that would really benefit exactly the kids who you were talking about in this example who might otherwise get shunted into something that's off the books. And I like what Peter brought up too, that the, like the alternative isn't, you know, these kids are fanned eating grapes or whatever, which, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't want my kid to be doing that anyway, but the alternative is what you go to school and you're yelled at by your teacher for not finishing your algebra two homework. And then some sadistic gym teacher makes you run. Like, you know, if we talk about like how bad things are, you know, in the characteristic example of child labor, which is a caricature, right? Because a lot of things that high schoolers do for employment aren't terribly exploitative. I mean, can we compare that to the caricature of what a bad high school experience is? So that, and, those are my two cents. And I think you're you're especially right, Justin, because in those marginal cases that Russ was talking about, then think of what the high school and the schools look like in those places where kids, you know, don't have their parents don't have enough money to make it. Those schools are a reflection of that socioeconomic environment that they're in. And there's no option out because, you know, the way our public school system is set up. And so you look at one of these schools in these really, you know, economically poor off areas uh, and literacy rates are low and passing math proficiency tests. Gosh, I think it's like Baltimore in Maryland where like the math proficiency test pass rate in, that high, in the high school up there's like 15% or something like that, like way, way in the bottom. And it's like, so what are we doing exactly? Well, we're wasting people's time. We're throwing them in the in an environment that a lot of them will face violence more often in their everyday life. Imagine if they went to work for, for McDonald's instead, you know, are you going to get in fights at McDonald's? Maybe like, I'm sure that has happened before, but probably not as much as in high schools. Are you going to sit around and learn useless things? Probably not. You're actually probably going to learn useful things that you might do again in later jobs. Right. And so I, I think, and not only will you learn useless things in the high school, you might not learn at all, which is what seems to be happening in, in our uh, poor off high school area. So, yeah, I think, that this is even exacerbated when you compare high school to the option of working. Yeah. All right. Well, this looks like a good spot for our break. Um, When we come back, we'll try to weave in some faith components into this child labor issue, as well as international. Um, In sub-Saharan Africa, about 25% of five to 17-year-olds are working. And Asia Pacific, it's uh, 12%. Latin America is around 10%. So there's a lot of these issues around the world, and we'll try to explore some international issues that way. We'll be back in just a bit. By 2030, the Gordy Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. PPE Fest is coming soon, December 3rd and 4th. That's a Friday, Saturday here at Ottawa University. We have world-renowned speakers, TK Coleman of FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education, and Dr. Jim Gortney, along with some competitions on for high school students with philosophy, politics, and economics. This is where high school minds compete and flourish. If you or someone else you know that's a high school junior or senior, please contact 
Peter, Justin, or Russ today. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find our content. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to gourney.institute at gmail.com. All right, welcome back. So we want to continue on here with a little international interjection as I left in the cliffhanger and a little faith component. So one thing that our graduate assistant Luke brought up was a story that I had forgotten about, um, but was able to Google and find Luke 241 through 52. I won't read it entirely, but there's a couple clips from it. Uh, when he, Jesus, was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. And after the festival was over, Jesus ended up speaking and teaching and starting his ministry, really, by working with those uh, that were present. And it was more because it was an accident that the parents had left. They thought he was with them, and uh, he ended up being there for a long period of time. And so it is an example of boy Jesus uh, starting his ministry and to some degree going to work. So there is a, a, a little biblical evidence of the divine even partaking in some child labor, if we want to frame it that way. I don't want to push that too hard, but that is one instance in there. On the international side, I just, I couldn't help but bring up to expand on what I did. I The unlikely or the small percentage, I should say, of American children who are needing to work because of abusive relationship with parents or just in poverty for whatever the circumstances are. Around the globe, of course, that's all over the place. And so we have uh, the poverty rates on $2 a day, $1.90 a day is incredibly high in countries where there's not a lot of economic freedom. And so in countries like the United States, our poor are earning 10 times the amount that their poor are. And so hunger and um, meeting the basic necessities of life are a thing there. And I, so I think the reason why we see 49% of, or four, uh, 49 countries rather in that last piece that have made minimal progress at all is that they're just trying to get to first base. And I think to take away those opportunities because of us trying to impose our Western laws on them is, is really disgraceful in a sense. Um, another thing that's brought up in this literature is that if we do successfully impose Western child labor laws, and, and by the way, of course, we're limiting, we, I, I don't think anybody wants the five-year-old in the factory. We're mostly, uh, so having some standards, I'm, I'm, I'm not completely convinced that no standards at all is the right way to go. But if the United States passes something like nobody under the age of 16 can work in the factory, they'll substitute into domestic production. And what the literature has found that the domestic production in agriculture or other ways is more dangerous than what the child faced in the factory and less pay, uh, let alone the situation where they might be pushing them into child prostitution or make them potential victims of human trafficking. So all of those things are very real. And I think the United States should be very careful at imposing their way of doing things on other places around the world, because global trade might be their best ticket. I shouldn't even say might be. I'm a firm believer that it is the best ticket for them to improve their lot in life. Now that Russ has talked about not imposing our way of thinking, I'll impose my way of thinking. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I will say the one nuance with this is I, I am always reticent to endorse like we need to have more acceptance of child labor in other countries. <laughs> and, 
And I, I agree with everything that you said, Russ. The reason that I still am uh, a little hesitant to do that is that I'm not actually certain that all the child labor that happens in other countries is families voluntarily deciding with their children, hey, in order to make ends meet, you have to work. In other words, in places like China or, you know, a lot of developing countries, you hear stories of these factories of multi-million dollar corporations like Nike or Apple or these uh, organizations having this low paid child labor. Part of the story is the question of, well, how much of this labor is actually voluntary? How many of these kids are working voluntarily to help provide for their families versus someone in the area has co basically coerced the parents of these children or is even like kidnaps these children and is basically using them to um, make minimal amounts of money. And so child labor oftentimes, maybe because it's, it's in part driven underground, but many times is actually involuntary. And we can even imagine like a terrible parent, like the Cinderella story, right? Of, uh, you know, some parent who's forcing their kids to go to work and maybe they don't need the extra money, but the parent's just uh, wasting the extra money on, you know, let's you make extreme example on booze. You send your child to work at the Nike factory so you can buy more beer, uh, something like that. And so I'm a little careful whenever we talk about child labor, because there is a third category. We, Justin mentioned our two categories. There's the dangerous jobs that no one wants their kids to do. There are the good jobs that could be helpful for kids to do. Then there's this third category of either a good or a dangerous job, usually dangerous, uh, which is involuntary. It's in other words, forced labor. labor. Yeah. So oftentimes child labor in other countries is forced labor. And so I'm always a little bit hesitant to endorse child labor. So uh, this is a, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, <laughs> our labor in the United States is forced too, uh, to some extent. I mean, when the, when the 13 year old um, at the farm doesn't feel like going out on the tractor that day, is it possible that if they uh, rebuke their dad that they get a swat on the butt? I mean, that, that's possible. And that probably does happen to some extent. What probably doesn't happen as much is like, you know, basically businesses set up that are based on the idea of let's kidnap a bunch of children and send them to the factory, give them bare minimum yeah. food and like collect them. So, so you're okay if it's within the family. Well, I'm not okay with it. I, I just recognize the limitations of responding to yeah. it. And so, you know, and, and I'm also not worried. No one in the U.S. is like trying to endorse child labor in the U.S., or at least it's not a very strong lobby, whereas a lot of people are, are trying to defend child labor in other countries for the, re the right reasons that right. you said that it fosters developments. But we can't ignore the fact that a lot of this child labor in other countries is forced. Yeah. And there's, it, it, I'm glad we're, we're having the discussion. There's a, there's a real gray area that we need yeah. to be very careful on both sides. But as since we like to talk about policy here, where does policy fall on that? Do we let, do we let it fall more on freedom or do we try to have the government be a better police court and judge on the child labor law? Go ahead, so, Justin. Um, while I agree with Peter that there are these bad Cinderella cases and, um, you know, the, uh, the example of very, very, powerful and rich corporations essentially enslaving children in China. That would be a, an example of things that were bad too. Um, I do think that the majority of the cases of child labor do fall into those two categories, which I was talking about earlier, which are exploitative and onerous kinds of child labor that we don't want children to do and kind of the kind of child labor that we want teenagers to be able to do. Um, and my contention here is that legislation 
is a really blunt tool and isn't the right tool to address the things that we don't like about onerous child labor while leaving alone the things that we do like about um, what you could call even character building child labor. So what I what I would contend, and I think that a lot of economists agree with me, is that the reason exploitative child labor exists in the first place is that those people have a very real lack of wealth, right? That um, yeah. not having your children participate in onerous child labor is historically a luxury. Yeah. And so by outlawing that, you actually don't address that problem. You just make these people poorer. It's not like, you know, the, the whole point about Marie Antoinette when she said, well, let them eat cake, right? Was that people were complaining that there wasn't any bread and her tortoise, well, then they should eat cake instead. And it's like, well, that's obviously not an option that's available to them, right? Um, so if we say, well, no more child labor, you know, uh, treat those children well instead. Well, that's not the option either, right? So I don't think legislation solves that problem in the onerous cases of child labor. And I think what it does in the when you make these legislative acts is it outlaws the kind of child labor that we actually do want and find effective. Yeah, let me let me color this in a little bit more. So I mentioned in sub-Saharan Africa, 25% of the age group of five to 17 are working. And the five to 17 age group is 63 million kids. So if we take that option away, if we look at, let's say there's 20 million kids working and what fraction is the odious case that Peter brought up? Is it 5% of those 20 million kids or is it 90% of those 20 million kids? To me, that's the difference between using legislative action or not. I suspect it's a small percentage that would be the odious case that isn't allowing these kids to help positively contribute to the bottom line and putting food in their tummies and, and roofs over their health and getting shelter. So I, I tend to agree that legislation's the wrong way to go about it in a heavy handed way. Again, there might be some minimal things of, you know, where does it start? Where does it end? Is it five years old? Okay. Is seven years old? Okay. Is 12 years old? You know, what, what's the threshold? That's a tough one. But then yeah. can we also, uh, no, go ahead, Really quickly, the, the definition of what we mean by labor is important here too, right? Because when we're talking about child labor in the U.S., right, do we mean a child that's on the payroll of a firm? Do we mean a child who is mowing their lawn? You know, my bro- my little brother used to complain when uh, he would get asked to do things like get my mom a glass of water when she was at dinner. My brother would uh, call himself. <laughs> and he, would, uh, he would claim that uh, my parents were trying to enslave him, right? um, which it's just not the case. Right. Yeah. Um, but it is the case, though, that in very poor households, children do end up having having to do a lot more like uh, housework. If you are yeah. if you are the eldest child of a single parent, you are going to be doing a lot of the parenting yeah. work that a parent would yeah. do. So is that any less objectionable than the eldest child of a two-family household, like going out and apprenticing at, you know, in a mechanic shop or something? And I think this, this distinction is very tough to draw with what we actually mean by labor in the first place anyway. 
Yeah. I, and I'll just qualify that. I, I actually agree with both of what you said, uh, Justin, in that like the effect of the legislation probably wouldn't help in the cases that we're against and, and would hurt the cases that we're okay with. And I agree with Russ that uh, probably the percentage is very small. Uh, and because the percentage is very small, it doesn't make sense to pursue, pursue this legislatively. What I want to emphasize is that if we want to use the term liberalism or libertarianism or just like use a, the word of like a, a freedom or something like this, that this perspective of looking at the world is a very thin perspective. And it's important to have thin perspectives. It's important to say that I believe people should be free to do things. And so I am against legislation because this is like a blunt tool and you can't use a hammer to fix a microchip, something like this. That doesn't mean, though, that we can't have something to say about these bad cases. And, and I don't think either of you are denying this either. In other words, I am still opposed to these cases where you have forced child labor. And so what does that mean? If I'm not pro-legislation, which I'm not, and I am still opposed to this, these cases, well, it means that there are probably things in my life that I could do to make this situation better that don't involve legislation. Specifically, if you're a listener and this is your issue that bothers you a lot, I recommend becoming CEO of Nike or Apple. I know this is a tall order. <laughs> the point, though, is that affecting change in a substantive way requires a lot of work. It's why politics is, I, I think, such a poison pill, is people feel like they can be important just by casting a vote rather than doing a ton of work to have a, yeah. a real impact. If you can become the CEO of Nike, or the CEO of Apple, and make sure the companies in those countries that they're running in aren't using this forced labor, and maybe it hurts your bottom line, but you do it anyways... That to me, that's the solution. Finding a nonprofit that is passionate about yeah, these issues. That's right. And, that or starting your own nonprofit is another free market solution to that avoids legislation um, to you know under uh, undercover stuff that you know seeks to find out what who's being hired and how they're working and it can be very targeted that way. And I, I think that's one of the beautiful things of the free market solutions is it's very organic mm -hmm. and will likely it'll create a better knowledge about the issues without then undermining the ones who need that work. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you, Russ. And if you want an even easier version of this, you could just decide not to buy certain products of certain companies, right? I don't have any problem with this. If you have a company that you think is pretty reasonably likely to be using forced child labor, you probably shouldn't be buying their things already. Like this seems to me to be a moral imperative uh, or at least uh, something that's uh, maybe praiseworthy uh, if it's not a moral imperative. So I like yeah. Peter's discussion of thinness and that, uh, you know, just because we don't want to politically forbid something doesn't mean we need to morally approve of what's going on. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that we don't have some sort of call to action still. Yeah. Uh, but the ultimate problem is, and I think this is a problem that my generation, maybe the generation under me, uh, you know, and Justin's generation, to some extent, probably was sold this, you know, you need to go out and change the world. Like you graduate from high school and our high school song, we didn't get to pick it, but it was something about like, go make it a difference in the world or something like that. Here's the thing with changing the world. You have to be successful to change the world. Like you have to succeed. And like these two things don't happen at the same time. It's you need to be successful first and then you can affect change in the world. You don't get to skip the successful step. So you don't get to be lazy, sit at home and cause change to happen. That's just not how change works. How dare Peter try to draw this age distinction? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this looks like a good place to wrap. Uh, this has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. A five-star rating helps other people find us. 
Uh, and also you can forward it along to other people uh, in your network and hopefully we can build and build like we have been. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.